0: The
1: nation station, Manx Radio. I. good afternoon and welcome to Perspective on Manx Radio. I'm Dolan Mercer, here with you until two o'clock. On Monday, students from the island's five comprehensive secondary schools swapped classrooms for questions... PE for politics and maths for motions at the annual sitting of Junior Tinwald. The initiative gives year 12 students the rare chance to quiz government ministers and representatives on topics of their choosing in the island's foremost political arena as well as putting motions to the court. We'll get to the motions later but first question time.
2: We now turn to our question paper and question number 1 I call on the honourable member for council Miss Hurd to ask the chief minister
3: Um, Whether the Isle of Man residents should have been entitled to vote in the EU referendum and if there is to be a people's vote in the UK, if the Manx government will lobby for
4: our right to be included?
2: Call on the Chief Minister to reply. Thank you, Mr Deputy
5: President. The Isle of Man is a self-governing dependency of the Crown and, although not a sovereign state in its own right, it does have its own independent legal, administrative and fiscal systems which are separate from the United Kingdoms. The Isle of Man is not part of the United Kingdom. It is not a member of the European Union, nor is it included in the UK's membership of the European Union. The UK's withdrawal from the EU and the subsequent negotiation process are for the United Kingdom to determine. That is why Manx residents were not entitled to vote in the referendum of 2016 and why we similarly will not be entitled to vote on any future people's vote, should there be one. The Isle of Man's limited relationship with the EU means we are included in the EU customs territory, and allows for trade in manufactured goods and agricultural products. This relationship is through the UK and is dependent on the UK's membership of the European Union. If, once agreed and finalised, there are elements of the UK's new relationship with the EU which may be beneficial to the Isle of Man to participate in, then these will be examined on their merits. As with any international agreement which the UK enters into, it will then be for the Isle of Man government to determine to what extent it may wish to participate.
2: Now. If anyone has uh, any supplementary questions, either stand or give me a pretty obvious wave um, and then I can make sure you're called and you can ask supplementary questions on any of the questions that are put before you today. Supplementary question? No? In which case, we left the Chief Minister off lightly and we move on to question two. I just answered it so well, Mr Deputy President. (coughs) I call on the Honourable Member for Douglas East, Ms Manley.
6: Um, whether the government has any plans to revise its policy about receiving refugees into the island?
2: Again, calling the Chief Minister to reply. Thank
5: you, Mr Deputy President. The Council of Ministers has given careful and detailed consideration over a number of years to the possibility of receiving refugees, and Syrian refugees in particular, into the island. The issue was also debated in Timwold in November 2018, when there was a motion to establish a select committee to investigate the possibility of the island's acceptance of Syrian refugees. The Council of Ministers is certainly sympathetic to the plight of refugees, and the generosity of the people of the island cannot be doubted. But it is important to consider how can we help in the most effective way. After serious and full consideration of the issues, and of all aspects of the support that refugees need to rebuild their lives, the Council of Ministers believes the Isle of Man can offer more effective support to a greater number of people by directing funds to established and ongoing relief efforts. The Government has provided £1.5 million from the island's international development budget. To support Syrian refugees since the conflict began in that country. We will continue to look for ways to support refugees through the provision of humanitarian aid in the future, but there are no plans for the government to revise its policy about receiving refugees into the island.
7: Supplementary question, Mr. King. Thank you. If I remember rightly, in April, the Chief Minister was present at an Isle of Man Choral Society concert when Syrian refugee Amina Abu Karech read her award-winning poem, Lament for Syria, in which she emotively and fondly recalls her homeland. Did hearing her words and Carl Jenkins's musical setting make the Chief Minister question his position on the issue of accepting Syrian refugees on the island?
5: Chief Minister to reply. Thank you, and I thank the Honourable Member for reminding me that I was there. In fact, it was a most enjoyable concert. And yes, this is an incredibly emotive issue, but if we accept Syrian refugees, how many will come to the Isle of Man? And the answer is five families as part of the agreement with the UK on a pro rata basis on how many you take. Our funding has helped 20 to 30,000 people living there, giving them tents, avoiding child um, abuse, where we we have reports that young girls are forced to prostitute to help raise funds for the rent where they're living in in the in the camps nearby this is a dreadful situation that the world faces and it was felt that looking at all the facts that the plight of the syrian refugees whilst it was dreadful how we have to look at the cold light of day what is the best way to help those people and do we help five families with with relocating location to the Isle of Man, or do we help twenty, thirty thousand um, 30,000 people with, with aid? And it was felt that we were better off helping a vast number of people than just a very small amount of people. Also, what about Somalia, Myanmar, and all the other countries? that have a refugee problem, that have a right to, to resettle. Why are we just considering Syrian refugees? Now, this has been an incredibly emotive topic, and I, I, I know the Honourable Member uh, may not share my views, but I can reassure the Honourable Court that Council of Ministers, when it made the decision, made the decision based on what was best. What could we do if we have an amount of money what can we do best to help the people of Syria and other countries, because obviously the Isle of Man government helps a number of other jurisdictions as well. And this is why we felt giving 1.5 million, which is what we would have had to have spent on the five families over a five-year period, because you have to commit to providing certain things for a five-year period. That 1.5 million helping 20 to 30,000 people was far better for the people of Syria than looking after five families on an island. I think it was tokenism, really. Thank you, Mr. Deputy President.
2: Supplementary question on uh, board for Aaron Michael.
8: Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, Mr. Uh, Chief Minister, I would like to ask you, you mentioned other countries in which the Isle Man is sending refugee aid. Can you list these countries, please, for the House? Uh, Chief Minister, if you have that information. Yes. Well,
5: I I don't have the information here, but I know myself that we've sent um, hundreds of thousands of pounds to Myanmar. Well, not directly to Myanmar. We've sent it to the countries surrounding Myanmar, where the refugees have have had to go to to, to live, those that are being persecuted. We've sent money to um, Bangladesh, to numerous um, uh, um, countries in Africa where... um, to help with with, with drought water situations. We take it for granted that we turn a tap on, we get fresh water. An awful lot of countries don't have that benefit. And we have a a committee, a team, that look at all the various requests for funding. We work with the Disaster Emergency Committee, and they advise us on where serious issues are around the world. And we have 2.5 million pounds that we distribute every year to countries where it has felt the money can be well spent. And, and I think recently we're going to be spending money through the RNLI helping 10,000 children learn to swim because drowning in, in certain countries where young people cannot swim is incredibly important. So international aid helps in an awful lot of, of ways. And sadly, very sadly, there are dozens and dozens of countries in this world where people are fleeing from and looking for a better life or being persecuted.
2: Question three, I call on the Honourable Member for Douglas East, Ms Sharp.
3: Um, the Honourable Member, whether a tax system where the highest rate of income is 20% is fair?
2: Now, I call on the Member for the Treasury, Mr Shimmons, to reply. Mr Deputy
9: President, it is important that our tax system remains attractive in order to maintain the island's competitiveness as a place to live, work, carry out business and support both economic growth and sustainable government revenues. Eleman has a progressive tax system that includes a lower tax rate of 10% and a tax-free personal allowance. This means that an individual does not pay any income tax until their income exceeds £14,000 or £28,000 in the case of a jointly assessed couple. They will then only pay tax at a rate of 10% until their income exceeds £20,500 or £41,000 for a jointly assessed couple. During the first three years of this administration, the personal allowance has increased by 33%, from £10,500 to £14,000, removing approximately 6,500 people from paying income tax. Mr Deputy President, raising the 20% rate or introducing a higher rate of tax, would not necessarily result in any increase of government revenues. Indeed, it could have the opposite effect. Prospective new residents and businesses would potentially look up at taking up residence in other jurisdictions with more attractive rates of tax, whilst existing business and resident individuals may relocate away from the island, resulting in job losses, reduced government revenues, adversely impacting our economy. Therefore, I consider that both through the progressive tax system that we have in place, in which the amount of tax increases in proportion to an individual's income, together with current personal tax allowances and tax rates, are both fair and competitive and essential to maintaining the economic success of our
2: island. Supplementary question Ms. Sharp?
3: Um, since the, two, um, the 2017 um, scandal with, where the Isle of Man was faced with large criticisms over the rich and famous um, avoiding having to pay tax on their property in the UK and also with private jets, what do you think should be done to stop this from happening again?
2: Member for Treasury to reply. The Honourable
9: Member um, <clears throat> makes some good points, but taxes uh, by nature both a complex and competitive area. Our tax rates need to be looked at as part of the overall fiscal structure of of the island. And if you compare our top rates of tax with other places in the European Union, for example, Bulgaria, the top rate of tax is 10%, Czech Republic, Hungary, Lithuania it's 15%, and further afield, Hong Kong is 15%, Singapore is 22%, but that only kicks in at around 164,000. In some countries, there is no rate of income tax, for example, United Arab Emirates. So countries look at their tax structure based on direct taxation on income or corporate tax, but also they look at indirect taxes. For example, here we have value-added tax. So it's important we get the balance right to fund the public services that we need in terms of health and education, but also look to have a competitive fiscal environment to attract and retain both people and businesses on this island.
2: Supplementary question?
10: No. Point of order, Mr Deputy President. Are members clear that they may enter into further supplementaries beyond the original one?
2: Uh, I hope so. I think I've tried to make make the point that uh, I would encourage Honourable Members to uh, listen to the answer that they're given with a critical ear. Um, and see if there's maybe something that the, the person answering the question has missed out. In which case, then it's up to you to, um, to ask them to fill the gap. Um, further supplementary question, then,
8: um, Mr. Treasury Minister. Recently, a study found that manx schools are twelve percent less funded per student than English schools. Is it perhaps um, <laughs> is it perhaps then uh, standard? that we should raise our tax rates so that we can better fund our schools on the island. Member for Treasury to apply. Thank you, Mr Deputy
9: President. The Honourable Member raises a a good point. On the one hand, we have demands for funding our essential public services like education, and it's important that we ensure that we have adequate funding for education, health, and other uh, government um, services. But also, we do need... To take account that we need to be competitive. So if we benchmark ourselves potentially with the other crown dependencies, which are similar in scale to the Isle of Man, and we need to remember we do have some challenges in, t- in that we have a relatively small base. Both um, Jersey and Guernsey have a similar top rate of income tax at 20%. Now,
2: question four. I'm going to call on the Honourable Member for Arby Maloo in Castletown. Mr Walker. Thank you, Mr Deputy President. I would like to ask the Treasury, Treasury Minister whether it
11: is
12: ethically responsible for the Government to invest in non environmentally friendly stocks and insurance.
2: Okay, we'll I call the Member for the Treasury, Mr Shimmons, to reply. Thank you, Mr Deputy President.
9: Treasury recognises that climate change and sustainability is becoming an increasingly important consideration, and this has been discussed within Treasury's Investment Committee meetings as part of the regular oversight of Government investments. In order to mitigate risk and achieve satisfactory diversification, the holdings within the Treasury reserves are selected and managed by five investment management companies who are appointed by Treasury following a tender process. Treasury does not advise the investment managers on which stocks to pick but each is working within a mandate outlined during the tender process in 2015, the details of which are published in the government accounts. Different reserves (coughs) have different targets, which are for returns to exceed the bank base rate by either 1% or 3%. Corporate social responsibility and environmental social governance investing is important to Treasury, and has been discussed recently with all our investment managers. The investment managers have advised that environmental (coughs) considerations are inevitably included in their stock picking decisions. The Chief Financial Officer and I recently attended a conference in London where the impact of climate change on financing was considered. It was clear from the discussions that consideration of sustainability and financing is high on the agenda for financiers and approaches to ensuring investment decisions are able to consider sustainability and climate change are developing rapidly. For example, just last week, the European Union expert group on sustainable finance published a taxonomy. (coughs) That's a classification system which provides technical screening Across eight sectors that it views can make a substantial contribution to climate change mitigation. There are also other approaches being developed. For example, ESG investment, which assesses environmental, social, and governance factors relating to a company's operations. These are exciting developments. However, these approaches are still in their infancy. it is important that we carefully take all issues into consideration when agreeing investment mandates, and this includes the necessity for ongoing investment returns, which are essential to the government's financial sustainability. I have tasked the Investment Committee to review the environmental, social and governance aspects to provide recommendations which allow the professional investment managers to provide positive returns on government reserves Whilst working within environmental considerations.
2: Supplementary question, Mr. Walker. Thank you awesome. What percentage of reserves are invested in ethical shares? Call them for Treasury to
9: reply. Thank you. And that's uh, an excellent question. From the <laughs> <Honourable>. <laughs> yeah, it is because yes. the question is, how do you define what an ethical share is? And that's. A question which many people who manage investments, large pension funds, government reserves around the world are grappling with. And that's why the European Union has published the taxonomy in terms of what do you classify across different sectors. Because there is, unfortunately, an element of tick boxing and perhaps greenwashing in some of the statements that is made. Um, looking at different companies and different stocks and shares. So, as I say, it's a very exciting time because the financial markets are reacting to the need to transition, um, particularly with the climate change emergency. And so what we're looking at is these developments in terms of what do you classify uh, as as an ethical share? Thank you. Supplementary question, Uh, Uh, Mr
2: McClelland.
13: Uh, I'd like to ask the minister how he feels about the recent growing demands for the divestment of uh, some forty million pounds in fossil fuel companies by protesters.
2: Minister uh, Treasury to reply. Thank you.
9: Um, the divestment of fossil fuels is something which um, is being considered, um, but we need to be aware that some of the largest oil companies, for example are also at the forefront of developing new cleaner energy alternatives. Mm-hmm. So hydrogen fuel cells, um, electric vehicles. And it makes sense for these large corporations, because they're also looking at their future sustainability of their model. Many of them have large downstream operations with things like petrol stations. Um, so it's a it's a very complex uh, and, in some ways, very nuanced um, situation. So um, we are actively looking at it, as have many other people, and um, I think there is developing best practice in this area, and we are following it very closely, and it is certainly something that we are giving full consideration to. Question
2: 5. I call on the Honourable Member for Ramsey, Mr Parkinson.
14: Minister for Policy and Reform, as I am sure you are aware, House prices in the Isle of Man have been spiralling for some years. This, along with rising cost of living, has put many in places of hardship. How do you propose to alleviate this trouble?
1: Okay.
2: Um, what I'll ask is when members stand up to, to ask their initial question, if they could just read the question on the order paper and save any other comments for supplementary questions. That would be, that'd be really helpful. Um, so, Minister, uh, question five. Thank you. Uh,
15: the plans that government have had are those which it has still, because they're the programme for government plans. <coughs> The cost of living on the island man really depends on what kind of household you are. The most recent comparison is in the minimum income standards in the 2019 Living Wage Report. This includes a comparison of different households on the island and the UK using similar baskets of goods and services. This shows that for single people and couples with two or more children, the island can be about 20% more expensive than the UK. Whilst for couples without children and single parents with one child and couples with one child, it can be around only 8% more. Amongst other things, like tax and other public revenue rates, the Isle of Man public service is assisting people in respect to the cost of living by limiting increases in costs to CPI, either directly with electricity, water and sewerage rates, or indirectly through user agreements such as that for sea services. For housing, ranking the island against local authorities in England and Wales, the island comes 164th out of 355 regions in terms of median house prices. As the minimum income standards show, renting on the island is more expensive than the United Kingdom, and the programme for government recognises this is an issue for many and covers things like deposits, rent per deposit depiction tenancy arbitration, and for social housing, rent increases have been limited to CPR
2: years. Supplementary question?
15: The
14: Right to Buy bill in the UK saw a 15% increase in home ownership. Why has such bill
15: not been implemented on the Man?
2: Minister to reply.
15: Um, Tim Woolworth and its branches can do what they want. There hasn't been that demand in the Isle of Man for 40 years. There hasn't been that demand in terms of social housing and in terms of private housing. There also hasn't that been that demand as yet. I think, actual fact, we're in a better place in terms of social housing in the island because of not following 80s policies in the UK and I think we need to be very careful about improving the housing market but the honourable questioner makes a very good point we need a better housing policy to assist younger people and in fact everybody to make sure housing is not only accessible um, good but also affordable So
2: supplementary question
16: um. Ms.
2: Sloan.
3: I would like to ask the Minister for Policy and Reform whether he feels that the imposition of a maximum price, say per square foot of a property being rented, would help to solve this market failure issue, or would it be ineffective? Thank you.
2: Minister, to reply.
15: Uh, thank you, Mr President, and for that excellent question. We, we constantly need to test whether controls for rental prices are worthwhile. We have had legislation in the past in the island to control rents, still people can take rent claims for excessive renting to the tribunal. I personally, I don't believe that there is a great demand for that sort of intervention in the market. The way I see it is we've got to help the market develop so it's more affordable for young people and for everybody. And I think government's having some success. So, for instance, in 2018, the affordability ratio for young people was 9.17, comparing the median salary for those aged under 25 and the median and the lowest quartile house price. Whereas back in 2011, it was much higher at 12.83. So I think renting, we need to help, and also buying, we need to help, but with other policies rather than rent controls.
2: So, a voluntary question, Mr <coughs> Um I'd
13: like to ask the Minister whether or not he feels that the high cost of living uh, is causing people to emigrate from the Isle of Man, or uh, maybe move away after
15: university. Minister to reply. It's certainly, uh, thank you Mr President, Deputy President, it's certainly a contributory factor, there are other reasons why younger people might prefer to spend some years away from the island as well as the cost of living and in fact um, there, are, there are great reasons to be in the island despite the cost of living for young people, overall peop- people are sensible, young people are sensible and there's more to life, life opportunities, career opportunities than just the cost of living and I hope people will stay despite that 8% ex- um, extra
7: cost for being here
2: move to question six, i call the Honourable Member for Council,
7: Mr King. Um, I would like to ask the Minister for Enterprise what plans he has to limit emissions during the TT, Manx Grand Prix and Classic TT. I
2: ah, call on the Member for the Department of Enterprise, Mr Collister, to apply.
12: Um, thank you, Mr Deputy President. Motorsport events are hugely significant to the Manx economy. In 2018, they attracted 64,113 visitors providing £35.3 million pounds to businesses and receipts to Treasury totaled £6.3 million. At the same time, the Department recognises the importance of protecting our beautiful island and is committed to contributing to the action plan <coughs> for the island to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Recognising the importance of the reduction of, of emissions, This year, the department acquired a carbon credit for the 2018 TT event. This ensures that the emissions for the TT will be offset through emissions reduction program. It is expected that we will continue to use carbon credits to offset TT emissions in the future. In addition, the department has led the way over the last decade decade, by providing an opportunity for universities and motorcycle manufacturers to showcase their green technologies. Green emission motorcycling racing was first introduced to the Isle of Man TT in 2009. The concept was to introduce a TT Zero race powered without the use of carbon-based fuels and with zero toxic emissions. Some of the TT Zero electric bikes have also been charged using the hydro-turbo a um, power which comes from Snaefell Mountain which runs through um, Salmon Lake in- Centre in Laxey. This race, the TT Zero race, is still part of our TT programme today. More broadly, in terms of the impact of visitors for this year's TT Festival of Motorcycling in August, it will be compulsory for all grandstand food and beverage retailers to replace single-use plastics with alternatives wherever possible. The initiative will also be rolled out for the TT in 2020. In addition, from 2020, in the VIP hospitality tent, they will also be providing only reusable glass. As social attitudes and technology change, mainstream motorcycle manufacturers will continue to develop more environmentally sustainable vehicles which will enable the department to further reduce the event's carbon emissions, which we are committed to do. Thank you, Mr Deputy President.
2: Supplementary question, Mr King.
7: Um, Thank you. Um, Can the Minister uh, comment on whether placing a figure as the target or the limit for emissions during the races might be a good way of reducing the emissions during the TT? call on the member for the department to reply.
12: Um, thank you, Mr Deputy President. The figure, I'm happy to, to say, was £750. It was through an organisation called the um, Precison um, Foundation. But I think more widely, I think we should need to acknowledge that the government has just appointed um, Professor James Curran to oversee the island's transmission into a low-carbon economy. Our department will continue to work across government to identify the ways we can offset the emissions during TT and other motorsport events in order to help achieve the net zero carbon emissions by 2050 and I look forward to receiving that report in due course.
2: The question, Ms. Gray.
3: I would additionally like to ask the right honourable member whether he's considered the impact of air pollution on the island's health?
12: Member to reply. And um, thank you, Mr. Deputy President. I thank the Honourable Member for a question. I'm, I'm sure that will be considered as we look into this event as part of um, Professor Curran's um, overview of the island's emissions as, as a total. So I'm sure that, as I said, this is a cross-government um, working together to look at lowering the island's um, carbon emissions by 2050 and our department and all the events that we stage on the Isle of Man will feed into that I'm
7: certain
2: Supplementary question mr king
7: thank you De- mr deputy president um, the honorable member mentioned the tt0 races which take place in june during the tt however there is no tt0 at the festival of motorcycling or at the southern hundred uh, which happens in the south of the island will the department uh, enter into discussions with the organisers of these other events to see whether they could look at introducing these races here. Member to reply.
12: And um, thank you, uh, Mr. Deputy President. I think anyone who follows the TT programme will note that the number of entries into the TT Zero race has, has fallen over the last 10 years. What we do need to work um, to do is to work with universities and colleges and organisations and motorcycle uh, manufacturers. In order to increase their sort of drive to deliver um, more zero-carbon sort of um, vehicles, in order to put in these races. But at the moment, you know, there's, there's nothing stopping the Southern 100 or the Festival of Motorcycling actually looking at this and adding it to their programme as well.
2: Supplementary question, Ms. Main.
4: Does the honourable minister have any plans to phase out carbon-emitting bikes altogether from the T2? the
12: member for the department to reply. Um, thank you, um, Mr Deputy President. I think I've already highlighted the values of the, the TT to the Isle of Man economy. As, as I said, we've, we've just only just um, appointed uh, Professor um, Corrin to, to look at this as a wider topic. I certainly hope that the Isle of Man doesn't lose the, the TT Um, at this present moment in time but things will or may change in the future but I I hope at the moment that we have to really look at the number of visitors that come to the Isle of Man the overall economic value to businesses across the island and also to the Treasury and it it needs a wider discussion but myself personally I I think we should be um, I think we're taking the right course of action of offsetting those carbon emissions and um, investing in projects But I don't think we have any um, sort of plans to reduce that at the moment.
2: Mr. question, Mr. Trimble.
12: I'd like to ask the Minister, um, if um, entries
11: to the TT Zero races continue to fall as they do, are there any plans
12: to phase them out?
2: Member to reply.
12: Um, Thank you, Mr. Deputy President. I thank the Honourable Member um, for a very good question. I mean, it's something that we discuss every year before we put together the programme, because it takes up a, um, each race takes up a certain amount of time. It's the preparation, it's the practice, it's the staging. Um, so every year we do have that conversation, and that's why we're working so close with, um, agent, with um, universities and businesses <coughs> to try and encourage more people to enter that race and to, to push the technologies forward. But it isn't always an ongoing discussion. I hope we don't lose it in, in the near future but we've also got to encourage the technologies to catch up because there is now a push for us to do more and more with zero um, carbon emissions, so we now need the race to, to showcase that, those possibilities. Final supplementary on this question, Ms Main.
4: With respect, Honourable Minister, I was, I was not suggesting that we phase out the TT altogether. I was suggesting that Amelia the Isle of Man became a front runner in green technology for bike, for bike racing. Would you consider that a positive thing?
12: Member to apply. Um, Thank you, Mr. Deputy President. I think we are. I think I've just highlighted there, Mr. Deputy President, we have been the forerunner of um, zero emissions MTT. I I can't know anywhere in the world that actually stages a zero MTT race. So we are absolutely at the forefront. What we do need to do now is to take that um, technology, take that race and actually take it to the next level. And I think, as I say, we've showcased that since 2009. So we have been at the forefront.
2: Question seven, call the Honourable Member
8: for Aaron Michael, Mr Dunn. I would like to ask the Minif- Minister for Enterprise. In recent years, several major banks have declined coming to the island and left the island entirely. How many jobs have been lost as a result of banks leaving the island and whether the island is in decline as a financial centre? Again, call the Honourable Member for the Department of
2: Enterprise, Mr Collister, to reply.
12: Um, thank you, Mr Deputy President. Since, 2000, since the 2008 financial crisis, <coughs> Globally, banks have faced both economic and political pressures. Banks in the Isle of Man are no exception. Between 2014 and 2019, there has been a net reduction of approximately 150 jobs within the banking sector. Over the same time frame, the number of individual deposit-taking license holders on the Isle of Man has fallen from 28 to 12. The main reason for the loss of licence holders was due to the closure of pure deposit taken entries such as the Britannia and Abbey National as they were no longer commercially viable and the mergers of other licence holders took effect. By way of an example, Bradford and Bingley and um, Abbey National were acquired by Santander. Ring fencing rules have, however, driven an increase in staff at the remaining banks. So while there has been job losses through the reduction in license holders, these have been absorbed and expanded through other banks. This continues to be the case. The wider financial service sector includes insurance, professional services, legal, accountancy services, and corporate service providers. We look at the sector as a whole. This shows that the financial sector has, as a whole, grown through that time period. As an international business centre, finance remains an essential area of our economic development, and we are continued. To, uh, we are continuing to promote growth in the sector throughout the financial sector. Thank you, Mr. Deputy President.
8: Supplementary question, Mr. Dunn. Um, I know from a family member that some of these banks were, in fact, still making profits. Do you perhaps uh, think that? Because of things such as the Paradise Papers, the Panama Papers, and the recent registration uh, laws that passed the UK Parliament, which will force all banks by 2023 in offshore tax havens to register their customers. Do you think that these are making the island man less um, opportunistic for overseas financial investors? Member
12: to reply. Thank you, Mr. Deputy President. It's a a great question. I think um, the Isle of Man Financial Centre has been under pressure for many, many years and it's up to us to actually um, monitor that and I think the Chief Minister has already already highlighted that many times when he has those visits to the UK. He is fighting um, the Isle of Man's corner to make sure that we are, um, as a a jurisdiction, we are overly regulated at times. As a personal view, I think we are overly regulated. And we certainly um, you know, bat our corner when we have to against um, people when they put out statements, which I don't believe are factually correct. I mean, the financial sector on the Isle of Man represents 42.3% of the Isle of Man's GDP. So it's important that we protect that and we protect those jobs and we protect those industries. But as you say, banks are changing, you know, it's, um, so the whole sector is changing. What we do need to do is to make sure the Isle of Man is still a place that's open for business and we accept business and we want to encourage more business to come to the Isle of Man.
2: Now, Mr Carlisle, i be delighted to know I've got four supplementary questions, uh, first of which Mr Trimble. Um, I would
11: like to ask the Minister for Enterprise whether another large industry on the island, the e-gaming sector, has suffered a net reduction or growth and what these trends might tell us.
2: Member to answer that one if possible. Yeah, I think we're, a little we're. bit on banking, but. Uh, we
12: are straying, um, uh, Mr. President, because the question originally was on loss of jobs in banking. Yeah, I mean, the e gaming sector is something that's growing up on the Isle of Man very, very quickly. And it's it, again, it's unlike um, banking sector, unlike the, the corporate service provider, e gaming is more of a, a very easily movable sort of um, product. So we do have to be mindful, and we do have, as I say, from the outset. We've got to do a lot of other things to make sure that e-gaming companies setting up in the Isle of Man, stay in the Isle of Man, protect those jobs, and that's our, that's our role. That's the, the government's role, that's our jobs as politicians, to make sure that the Isle of Man is a very attractive place uh, compared to alternative um, jurisdictions around the world. It's question, Mr Herndon.
14: What specific measures does the Minister have to make the Isle of Man more attractive to financial
12: institutions than it already is? member to apply. Um, Thank you, uh, Mr. President. We are going slightly off because, as I say, the question here is about um, loss of jobs in banking. So I don't have that information. But as I say, we we work um, in DfE. We're continually working with industry. We've set up um, an an agency, which is the finance, and we have a business agency there as well. And they are always in touch with industry. They know what industry is um, thinking. And industry reports back to us in order for us to actually listen to those concerns and to help businesses wherever possible.
2: possiblewen question mr Moorcroft. Thank you mr. Deputy speaker
11: uh, I'd like to ask the minister for enterprise how does the department calculate
12: the number of jobs lost in the banking sector member to reply yeah thank you um, mr president um, between two thousand and thirteen two thousand sixteen and seventeen the banking sector contributed to the ni- the national income Um, to around um, 156 million. I mean, from the census, um, the 1996 census, it showed that we employed um, 1,781 people within the sector. We go to the 2016 census, it shows that actually the banking sector now employs 2,283 people, an increase of 501 people within the banking sector
7: file supplementary, Mr King. Does the Minister know of any banks or organisations planning to increase their presence on the island? Member to reply.
12: Um, Thank you, Mr Deputy President. Yes, I'm I'm more than happy to confirm that the Isle of Man has actually granted its first banking licence in 35 years, in 2018. So we are seeing people coming to the Isle of Man. And as I say, from the Isle of Man point of view, we're actually open for business.
2: Question 8. I call Honourable Member for Middle, Mr McGee. Thank you, Mr Deputy President.
17: I'd like to ask the
2: Minister what action the Manx Government will take to encourage UK universities to recognise Ireland students as home fee payers. I call the Minister for Education, Sport and Culture to reply.
16: Uh, thank you, Mr Deputy <coughs> President.
2: At present, the vast majority
16: of UK universities recognise Ireland students as home fee payers. The Manx Government along with its counterparts in other British Isles Crown Dependencies, have made representations to the UK Government with regard to their fee status. At present, there is no legislative plans on the part of the UK to alter the status of Crown Dependencies. The Manx Government will continue to monitor the situation closely and do its utmost to ensure Ireland students are not in any way disadvantaged when pursuing education courses at UK universities.
2: Thank you for your response and thank you Mr Deputy
14: President. uh, The Minister has talked about how uh, his Department and the Government is doing its utmost to ensure that Manx uh, students do not feel disadvantaged. I would like to ask, does the Minister, his Department or the Government have any plans to add additional provision to students who wish to study at
2: uh, UK institutions where they would be affected by higher fees? Minister to apply. Uh,
16: Thank you Mr Deputy President. Uh, there is no um, thought at the moment at altering the uh, level of support because the current level that we are, are giving is at the uh, UK level. We are fully aware that the UK government is going through a review at the moment regarding their uh, tuition fees and that's going to be a moveable fee. We, we understand that they're looking at around about £7,000 but it could go less. Uh, it all depends at the next general election what the UK government does
2: front so question, questions main.
4: has the honourable minister had any plans to perhaps change the status of students applying to Cambridge from international <coughs> to home fees
16: Minister uh, Thank You mr. deputy president myself and uh, the other education ministers from the Crown Dependencies did write to the university uh, you know asking them to see whether they would at home status, and it was a catalogue. No, they were going to continue at the international status.
2: Final supplementary on this particular question. I'm conscious we still have quite a few to get through. Miss Gray. Um,
3: my result was related to Miss Maines.
4: Sorry. No? No, um, I won't ask. Okay. It.
2: Qu- question 9. I call on the Honourable Member for Glen Faber and Peel, Mr McClelland. Uh,
13: thank you, Mr President. Uh, I'd like to ask the uh, uh, Education Minister whether the education system has been assessed in relation to exacerbating ill mental health among students and uh, whether it, the system is
2: adequately equipped to deal with mental health issues. I call the Minister for Education, Sport and Culture. Uh,
16: thank you, Mr Deputy President. The Ireland's education system is assessed through the School Self-Review and Evaluation, SSRE. The SSRE framework includes a section on pupils' personal development, guidance and support, and keeping pupils safe. Unusually compared with other jurisdictions, within these three sections is a requirement for schools to ensure and monitor pupil wellbeing, support social and emotional development, whether they are committed to ensuring uh, pupils feel safe and secure in school and can aspire towards managing their own risks Uh, through the department's 6R's learning dispositions. Pupils are also supported to be resilient and encouraged to build relationships which are positive. Island schools are held to account for supporting pupils' personal development by the Education Improvement Service which conducts regular monitoring and evaluation activities by a full external validation of all aspects of the SSRE once every three years. In terms of the Ireland's education system being adequately equipped to address mental health issues in young people, there are a number of areas of support available. Firstly, through the department's listening service, operates within schools and offers a secure environment within which pupils can share their feelings and talk to someone regarding any issues or concerns they have. Secondly, the Department have a group of fully trained emotional first aiders that can respond quickly when a young person requires guidance and support and a route through the supportive dialogue with an adult they can trust. Lastly, and most widely offered through schools is a pastoral commitment to supporting pupils' social, social emotional, Psychological uh, well-being through positive pupil-teacher relationships, and the strand of personal, social health education within the island's essentials for learning. These universal services are, of course, in addition to more specialist services such as educational psychology and camps.
2: Supplementary
11: question, Mr. Black. Uh, Does the minister, as shown, uh, stress levels in the youth of today are rising? at increasing levels, (coughs) would the Minister say that more measures outside of just schools, so in sports clubs and such, should be implemented to help lower the rising stress levels?
16: Minister, to reply, Uh, Thank you, Mr. Deputy President. I'm aware that a number of clubs do have people there to help deal in sports uh, with that side. Uh, And I hope this Honourable Court would support the department's position, alongside its teaching unions, to actually Uh, go against what has happened in the UK regarding league tables in schools which has been proved to cause so much stress on young people.
2: Supplementary question, Mr King.
7: Thank you Mr Deputy President. Does the department have any plans to ask students for feedback on the listening service and other services provided?
2: Minister to reply.
16: Thank you Mr Deputy President. Uh, The department has always welcomed any feedback from students I'm very much aware that there's a programme reach out there at the moment. Um, Unfortunately, there's been a a couple of uh, people who have uh, not dealt with their stresses um, and taken uh, courses that we would much hope that young people don't do, and we are trying to uh, get out and talk to people about how we can reduce those levels of stress. Supplementary question, Mr McClelland.
13: Um, I'd like to ask the Minister how he feels uh, exams such as uh, SATs, GCSEs, uh, AS and A2 exams affect uh, students' stress levels.
16: Minister reply. Uh Thank you, Mr Deputy President. I'm sure the uh, Honourable Member asking the question would be aware that we don't have SATs on the Isle of Man, uh, that we haven't had them for a number of years. Um, and one of the things is that we are aware that those exams do increase stress levels. Um, but there's a, there's a thing in life that sometimes, you know, Is it preparing you for later on in life? Because uh, as elected members of uh, this parliament will understand, elections uh, can add a significant (laughs) level of stress for honourable members. And when you go into a work environment, you you have to have some preparation for that. But we are fully aware that um, maybe the the changes from uh, ongoing evaluation of your coursework to just purely on-the-day exam has increased uh, the stress levels.
2: I know others are trying to get in with supplementary questions. I'm going to take one more on this one. I'm going to have to move on, I'm afraid, to try and get as many in as I can before half past. Um, Miss Main. the advantage of getting in early, Honourable Members. Okay.
4: Does the Honourable Minister have any concrete evidence that his mental health policies actually work?
2: Minister to reply. Uh, thank you, Mr
16: President. Uh, you. We have no concrete evidence. We try to go out there, we've we tried best practice. We're always trying to learn there's always going to be additional services that we could put in place.
2: Question 10, On the Honourable Member for Council, Mr Moorcroft. Thank you, Mr Deputy President. I'd like to ask the Minister
11: for Education, Sport and Culture, how will the Government ensure that the new Castle Russian High School building be constructed and will operate in an environmentally sensitive way, and what plans
2: are in place to reuse materials from the current school i the Minister for Education, Sport and Culture to apply.
16: Thank you Mr Deputy President. Although planning for the new Castle Russian uh, building is at the very early stage, the current strategic brief reflects the aims of the programme for government in this area, namely reducing energy consumption and promoting efficiency through reducing of waste and efficient use of resources. It contains a, a very clear emphasis on considerations of energy efficiency and sustainability. It aims to do this through benchmarking against uh, environmental targets and ultimately achieving uh, through uh, sustainability ratings. This rating can be achieved through sustainability checklists, which include community, economic, viability, waste, health and well-being, land use, architecture, ecology, energy and innovation in construction and design. There is also particular emphasis towards how much carbon can be saved in the new building and associated costs. At this early stage, plans to recycle and reuse materials from the current school buildings have yet to be considered.
2: Supplementary question, Mr Moorcroft.
11: Given the high level of engagement in environmental politics, would the Minister agree that it is a sensible idea to involve young people in the design stage
16: of the new school? Minister to reply. Uh, thank you, Mr Deputy President. It's one of the things that we're hoping to do when we get that stage when, when the programme has been uh, approved through Treasury is to be going out to uh, uh, pupils at the school to see about designs. The head teacher at the school has also been involved in visiting schools throughout the UK to look at good designs and we've also seen some not so good designs uh, and it would be my wish that the school will be at a positive
2: impact into the environment. Supplementary question, Ms. Sloan.
3: Thank you. Um, Does the Minister agree that the government has an obligation to consult the community of Castletown and the South on the building of the new school in order to satisfy their environmental needs and beliefs, as the school is not just for the students but for the community as a whole? Thank you.
16: Minister to apply. Uh, Thank you, Mr Deputy President. It will be an issue that we will be talking to students at the school. We will be going through the planning process which will engage the community. Uh, one of the thoughts actually on the school is to have community facilities at the front of the building so they can be accessed from the community and it will be part of the community. You know the, the facilities that I would envisage at the front will be a sporting uh, indoor sporting uh, centre, maybe a lecture theatre. My wish would be for a swimming pool to be put there because we're looking at hydrotherapy for, for helping people with additional educational needs. So there are all those areas that the department is looking at, but we also must be aware of the cost of, of these builds, but it be the lifetime cost of the building is, is vitally important, not just the short-term cost.
2: Mr McClelland, final
16: supplementary.
13: Uh, I'd like to ask the Minister whether he will take in, into consideration lessons learned that will come from this Newcastle Russian building and implement that into the new QE2 building which will be built. Uh, obviously it's uh, less along the line than the Newcastle Russian building, but I'm uh, sure it's in the design stage.
2: Minister to apply.
16: Uh, thank you, Mr Deputy. President. they both have the same sort of design, uh, and what's good for one school will be good for the other.
2: I'll try and get one more question in before our time is up. Uh, question 11, I call on the Honourable Member for Council, Ms Maine.
4: How does the Honourable Minister for Environment, Food and Agriculture reconcile the island's biosphere status with government activities such as the disposal to landfill of silt from Peel Harbour, or the endangering of rare orchids through surfacing works.
2: I call the Minister for Environment, Food and Agriculture to reply.
18: Thank you Mr Deputy President. We are rightly proud of our status as Biosphere Island Man, but we do not see this as any certification of perfection, nor a basis for complacency. We see it as a statement that we intend to look after our environment and work towards greater sustainability, finding the balance between environmental, social and economic needs in a modern, small island nation. Within this, we must meet the challenges head on and seek the best results in each case. With regard to Peel Silt, we are seeking the most appropriate method of dealing with this in conjunction with the Department of Infrastructure. This involves a publicly open process of planning applications on which anyone may make comment and which will require appropriate assessments. My Department does not undertake much in the way of resurfacing works, but I believe you may be referring to the DOI works on the heritage trail. The currently planned works have identified areas of orchids and a narrow trail has been designated for those sites. But we are aware as advisers on the matters relating to the Wildlife Act of the presumed loss of orchids on an area resurfaced earlier for which the DOI have held up its hands, acknowledging that the usual processes for consultation had been bypassed in a rush to get work done. This was unfortunate, and an officer has stated that remedial works would be undertaken. We be checking up on this as and when it happens. Overall, we do not utilise the biosphere status as a stick to beat people with. We have legislation providing the relevant controls. We use it to lead people towards a more sustainable living uh, way of the life, and this it does include looking after our environment. Thank
19: you.
2: So, question, Mr. Kane.
19: Yeah, I'd like to um, ask, the, ask the minister whether he would consider a more permanent restructuring of the Peel Marina as a more su- suitable solution, such as building a river channel f- uh, parallel to the Peel Marina, as to allow silt to flow into the sea, as to avoid um, a build-up of silt and to avoid redepositing silt elsewhere and the endangering of rare orchids and other environmental hazards, or whatever. Minister, to reply.
18: Uh, thank you, Mr. Deputy President. Um, we have been looking at a number of options with the Department of Infrastructure in terms of silt capture uh, before it actually gets to the marina. And uh, part of the overall scheme may include something that does just that. But removing the contaminated material uh, from the marina and uh, placing it uh, as it would appear to be the scheme at the moment in the dead's areas and then capping that will stop more oh. material washing down in into the marina
7: supplementary question mr king the biosphere status means that people live in balance with nature what is the minister for the environment food and agriculture doing on a personal level which respects this balance on the isle of man
2: <laughs> minister to reply.
18: thank you mr deputy president well uh, as minister I am obviously pursuing uh, environmentally friendly biodiverse policy uh, on behalf of government, and uh, that is a personal contribution. But if, talking about me personally, and perhaps we're getting a little bit too personal here, um, I, I have recently bought an electric car, so that's a step in the right direction. In the past, I've uh, planted, I, I own a, a farm, and I planted five hectares of trees, and I'm sure that in due course uh, there will be more trees planted. So. Uh, personal basis um, I, I' bought into the ethos of biosphere and uh, also climate change and uh, we grow vegetables for instance and harvest those and we do a lot of things around the farm and our property to enable wildlife etc so yes making a personal contribution but uh, personally also working with government to ensure that we have uh, a, a biosphere friendly environment and look at the issues of climate change.
2: The minister can still see the wood for the trees. That's the main (laughs) thing. And that that concludes the time allocated for uh, questions this morning. We'll now move on to our motions, and we turn to our order paper and item two: oil and and gas exploration. I call on the honourable member for Douglas Central, Miss Mitchell, to move.
6: Junior Tinwald is of the opinion that oil and gas exploration in Manx waters is likely to be detrimental to the environment and should be stopped. In 2011, minor earthquakes felt on the Five Coast of Lancashire were linked to fracking tests being carried out. What will you do in order to prevent any minor earthquakes? Seismic studies, drilling, and extraction could create noise, lose water and air. Marine mammals, fish, birds, and underwater plants could be disturbed. So, what will you do in order to protect our wildlife? Fees for the first phase would be £9 a a square kilometre rise into £30 for Phase 2 and £150 for Phase 3. How will that affect the taxpayers? The Isle of Man Green Party issued a press release condemning the licence given to Kroger, fearing that the effects of of gas exploration will ultimately damage and degrade the surrounding ecosystems and will be a catalyst for damaging the island's reputation as a UNESCO biosphere. What will you do to prevent any damage? gas exploration contaminates fresh water sources releases greenhouse gases and turns people's attention towards natural gas consumption instead of developing new renewable energy sources such as wind farms and solar power plants what will you do in order to help the people of the island move forward rather than backwards
2: now i need a seconder for that motion please mr thomas Make
15: like a second and reserve my remarks <clears throat>
2: No-one wishes to speak on this
7: particular motion? Mr King. Thank you, Mr Deputy President. I am of the view that gas exploration may be detrimental to the environment. However, this is nowhere near the main issue here. For example, people on the Isle of Man often feel the need to leave, be this for business, leisure, or seeing family. Since the declaration of the climate emergency, I would hope that the Isle of Man government, who own the steam packet company, are looking at ways of investing in a low emissions vessel to transport people on and off the island. Additionally, travel within this biosphere is not the most environmentally friendly, with so many diesel-fuelled buses driving around. Instead of funding this fleet, surely an investment in a more environmentally friendly mode of transport, such as investing in cycle lanes or subsidising electric vehicles, is necessary. Another example, the proposed building of a marina in Ramsey does not seem like an environmentally friendly suggestion. We have seen from Peel the recurring cost and environmental impact of having to dredge silt from the harbour. One questions how there can be questions of another project which could have similar implications. Finally, but not least, nearly all of the electricity used on the Isle of Man comes from the burning of gas. We could be leading the way in wind, hydroelectric, geothermal power. However, inward-looking views of people resistant to change are blocking any movement in this area. Oil and gas exploration in Manx waters may be detrimental to the environment, but let's face it, there are many other environmental issues which could be so much easier to sort out. And if we do ever end up extracting fossil fuels, it might be too late to be worried about the future. Let's change what we can now. Uh,
8: Yes, call on the Member, Mr Dunne. Thank you. Today, this house is divided. Divided opinions, divided viewpoints, divided ideologies. But on one point, we are united, the environment. For our generation, there is no greater cause than the protection and preservation of the future of our environment, the future of our world. But it is for these very reasons upon which I must reject this motion in the strongest possible terms. Not only does this motion completely fail to achieve its objective, but it actively obstructs it, preventing us from saving the world around. Firstly, let's deal with the concerns over the harm of sea life and the underwater environment in the searching for oil and gas. The technique you imagine when thinking for the search of oil is large drills and old-fashioned explosives. This is a misconception. In all developed countries around the world, such as our own, a new technique is used, the pressurized air gun. By using pressurized air, oil searchers can create shockwaves capable of discovering oil with little to no environmental impact. As such, the environmental consequences of searching for oil in the modern age are effectively none, making the purpose of the implementation of this motion questionable at best. And that ignores the economic side of this. searching, just searching for oil, brings hundreds of highly paid workers to the island. Highly paid workers who will spend money in our shops, on our taxes, and most importantly, via our services. It does not take an expert to see the cycle of prosperity this causes, as companies use this money to hire more employees, pay higher wages, and the employees use it to spend more in our shops. Thus the cycle repeats. But the most important part of this is the taxes. Yes, we can use these taxes to build better schools. Yes, we could use them to furnish better roads. But we can do far greater than that, such that any concerns of searching are immediately dwarfed. To explain this, let me use the example of Norway. In the 1960s, Norway was a country such as our own, a low-tax a low jurisdiction with a dwindling finance sector and um, a young population who fled to Europe's prosperity as soon as they came of age. Then they found oil. Over the next six decades, thousands of the most educated people in the world moved to Norway, spending their newly earned money in Norwegian shops and Norwegian property, proper, and most importantly, on Norwegian taxes, cleverly. The Norwegian government saved their oil taxes into one large fund, known as the Sovereign Wealth Fund. Since 1990 alone, the taxes from just one oil rig generated $6 billion worth of government money. The fund in total is worth more than 200 times that amount. Recently, however, the Norwegian government has begun emptying this fund. On what? Green energy. As I mentioned before, this whole house can agree upon the importance of the preservation of our environment then perhaps it is time we actually, meaningfully, act on it instead of inefficient and poorly thought out motions such as these. Wind turbines are, per kilowatt, 12 pounds more efficient to maintain than any other energy source available in our times, and the very greenest type. The only thing preventing us from basing the whole island's energy upon these is the cost of construction, for we certainly have no lack of wind. Using oil revenues alone, Norway is set to become the most eco-friendly country on the planet. It is time that this island did the same. So not only is modern oil searching environmentally neutral, not only would it reinvigorate our economy, not only would it keep students on the island, fund our schools and pave our roads, not only would it allow the government unsolicited wealth, but finding oil is better for the environment than if we don't. As such, Mr. President, I reject this motion in the strongest possible terms, as not only does it utterly fail to help our economy, but it fails to help the very thing it sets out to do, protect the environment as well.
2: on the Honourable Member for Council, Mr Black.
8: I believe
11: that while the exploration for oil and gas will damage our natural environment, I think the prospects of finding these natural resources are worth the damage. Should oil and gas be found, there are two possibilities. We either exploit it, doing more damage, however we gain economic power, which we can reinvest in our environment in other ways, or we leave it setting an example to the world that a small island can resist temptation of valuable resources in the aim of protecting the environment. I believe this option should be taken. Allow the search for oil and gas, but do not exploit it. Set a new precedent. The world must change into an environmentally friendly world powered by renewable sources and the Isle of Man should lead the way by ignoring the temptations of economic wealth. I call the
2: Honourable Member for Rushing, Ms Sloan.
3: Thank you, Minister. Whilst I understand the concerns regarding the extraction of um, oil and gas off the coast of the island, I think that the the potential government revenue to be gained from this is not to be ignored. This could be used to fund research to get better technology so we can in the long run become more environmentally friendly. It may be a short term loss, but I believe that in the long run this oil and gas extraction will be beneficial to the island. Additionally, the jobs created may help to counterbalance those which we previously mentioned were lost through the moving of banks and other um, companies off the island. By creating more jobs from the increased extraction of oil off the coast of the island, we can increase our economy, which again can be reinvested and looked into for more environmentally friendly methods of creating energy. So to conclude, in the long run, this may be more beneficial for our environment than the short-term losses. Thank you.
2: Cool. The Honourable Member for Glen and Peel, Mr McClelland.
13: Thank you, Mr President. I absolutely concur that this is a very well-meaning motion. Obviously, uh, it's not great for us to be extracting fossil fuels for the environment. I, I agree with that. And as I'm sure some of you know, I'm very active in the sort of eco-friendly campaigning. i Turn Up at the Student Strikes. I recently had a meeting with Mr. Gwagin and Mr. Booth. But I, I must have to oppose it because, as uh, Mr. Dunn said, uh, using Norway as an example, the only way we are going to be able to become environmentally friendly is with money. And the fossil fuels we may find is obviously very valuable. And we need to be able to convert our current infrastructure of the gas power station and the energy from waste plant into something else. But the only way we're going to be able to afford that is with the money that we get from fossil fuels. And arguably, it's better for us to be extracting our own oil and gas than importing it from other countries, surely.
2: <coughs> Thank you. Honourable Member for Council, Miss Maine.
4: <coughs> Whilst I am woefully ill-educated on both of these things, I do know that if you start drilling in the sea, it will damage fish stocks. And the island has been dependent on fishing for such a long time. It, sorry, were you about to say something you're raising me sorry (laughs) 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 everyone
2: else will be quiet and listen to you (laughs)
4: well whilst fishing is historically important and it is less so now surely it is important for us to think about what the fish what the fishermen want and how we can protect them from losing money from oil drilling which would damage fish stocks
2: On the honourable member for Douglas South Mr Herndon
14: I couldn't agree more that um, oil drill uh, natural gas exploration for natural gas is a good idea for the Isle of Man's economy and there are plans in place to limit the damage to the Isle of Man's and nat- natural resources is and environment and if it proves proves after uh, exploration, that um, um, taking advantage of these resources will, be so much, will do so much damage to the Isle of Man's environment, and it will. Uh, the taking advantage of these natural gas resources will be stopped. Oh, oh, and sorry, and the. Um, the licence will be revoked. Revoked for... um,
2: That's it. Sorry. Now, uh, honourable members, again, uh, time was beaten, so I'm going to have to call on Miss Mitchell to reply to the debate.
6: Thank you. Uh, Well, I'm sure we can all agree just how absolutely beautiful our island is. So it does feel as if... As you, as you mentioned, that um, this is just a short-term loss, but we will all benefit from it in the future. But I personally feel, and I'm sure a lot of people do, that if the oh. island is so widely known for its nature and for its wildlife, then why should we risk any loss of it to begin with? So that's what I stand with. Thank you.
2: Honourable Members, the question is at item 2 on your order paper, that Junior Tinwald is of the opinion that oil and gas exploration in Manx waters is likely to be detrimental to the environment and should be stopped. All those in favour, please say aye. Aye. All those against, say no. 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 The no's have it. Divide. Division called. Call on the clerk to run a vote. Green is for, red is against. Vote now, please.
9: Mr
19: Deputy,
10: Deputy President, in the keys, 8, for and 16 against.
2: In the Legislative Council, four votes for and four votes against. The motion therefore fails to carry... We turn then to item three on our order paper, referendums, and I call on the honourable member for Russian, Ms. Sloan, to move.
3: Thank you, Mr Minister. Um, The junior Timwald is of the opinion that greater use should be made of referendums to enhance the democratic process. The promise of a public's right to govern has been at the very heart of Western civilisation since the founding of Athenian democracy in the 5th century BC. Referendums encompass the planes of democracy that have been a part of our Manx political system in the many centuries since its establishment. (coughs) Whilst we are a representative rather than direct parliamentary democracy, the current system could be complemented by referendums. As we are unable to vote for parties who may then hold a majority, We cannot guarantee that the persons for whom we vote will be able to carry through on their promises and deliver the points on which they were elected, except if they're in the majority for this view. Here, referendums can be used to ensure that the decisions of Timwald reflect the majority view of the population, not just that of parliament. Referendums will help to bring more clarity to to politicians as they're better able to gauge the general consensus of the people This will be particularly helpful when making decisions that have moral and religious implications. Decisions regarding highly disputed, controversial political legislation can be aided by conducting referenda to understand the public stance. What if Tynwald were 50-50 on a matter that the island was 20-80 on? Here, a referendum can bring clarity to decision-making, making the process more efficient and more likely to produce the statistically best-received outcome. The government has every right to pass a bill or make an amendment, providing it follows appropriate protocol. But should they pass such bills where one's moral compass is drawn into question, without first having a mass consultation of the people? What I mean by this is that not every answer can be determined by representatives in Parliament and the statistics on their region's population demographic. The 2018 referendum on abortion reform in Ireland had an overwhelming majority of 67% in favour. The overall consensus of the population went against the predictions of the adverse outcome, influenced mainly by the high religious demographic, showing how useful referendums can be engaging the public's view on more controversial matters. Thank you.
2: A seconder for the motion. I second and reserve my mar- remarks. Thank you, Mr Herndon. Have any other person wishing to contribute to this particular debate? Please do, because otherwise Mr Thomas will be on for the 15 minutes. <laughs> you don't want that. Now, Miss um, <laughs> Kavchak from Honourable Member Fronken. Uh,
0: thank you. I believe the argument made is very valid in the sense that referendums do allow show a public consensus. However, I do believe that this argument is more valid in the case of larger population sizes, such as that of England or of Ireland. In the case of the Isle of Man, we have a drastically smaller population size. The Isle of Man population is only slightly larger than the average constituency size in the UK, thus meaning that all representatives present in the House of Commons do have a larger and greater understanding of what the public wants. Therefore, I don't believe that referendums are adequate to this situation. Representatives are aware of what the, the public wants. They have constant contact with members of the Who they represent. And thus are more aware. Referendums are not necessary as contact is constant. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Uh, call the honourable member for Ramsey, Mr
19: Kane. Man's democracy and the political system of the Isle of Man is far from perfect. Democracy lies on political participation from its electorate, and the Isle of Man in the most recent general election received a turnout of just 52%, one of the lowest of all countries in Europe. Lowest still, though, however, is Switzerland, with a turnout in its most recent election in 2015 of just 38%. Now, the reason I mention Switzerland is, of course, due to their regular usage of referendums, Ireland too have a relatively low voter turnout of just 58% who again prefer to legislate significant constitutional changes via direct democracy. If voter turnout and political participation is anything to go off, then referendums clearly are not the answer to improving Max democracy. Referendums may seem more bliss at first, though in countries such as Switzerland where voters may be expected to go to the polls up to seven times a year, voter fatigue is an inherent symptom to that ideal. The real solution and problem of Manx democracy lies at the feet of our electoral system. In order to stimulate political participation, we need a government that is seemingly functional, not one that is vague and which inspires little interest to its comings and goings. In order to create a government that is seemingly functional, we need to change our electoral system as a way to change our political system. At present, we have 24 MHKs, 21 of which are independent, which is only part of the reason why our government and Manx democracy feels itself in a position of immobility. The other part is down to our culture of voting and the lack of incentive as a result of this for MHKs to really drive for change. With such small electoral constituencies, the culture of voting is based heavily upon candidates' popularity and how well-known they are. Rather than, rather than policy, what voting should really be more importantly based upon. As long as a candidate in MHK is able to maintain their popularity and how well-known they are, they are likely to be re-elected every time. And this is what creates a lack of incentive in the House of Keys, as MHKs are less likely to be concerned with an upcoming general election, therefore less incentivised to initiate change or developments to try and boost their popularity. Where this might be a negative aspect of politics in some countries, I believe the importance of this, uh, of politicians fighting for general elections and a need to bolster their own reputation, might actually serve the island good, as more change might occur as a result, as there finally is an, an initiative to do so. The question is how to harness the initiative of, of the House of Keys, and to that I, I believe I have the answer. I propose that we adopt a, a party proportional representative, representative electoral system, not so, dis, not so dissimilar to, that, to the system used for the European par- parliamentary elections. The purpose of introducing this electoral system would be to create a multi-party system that would eliminate the present culture of voting by voting for a party and ideology and its various policies rather than an individual whom you might be close friends with. This in turn would increase incentive for parties to bolster their reputation so that they might get re-elected, forcing them to take initiative within the House of Keys. I would argue a multi-party system, as I, as I reject the notion that two-party system with a first-past-post electoral system leads to a more effective governance. In the UK, take the UK, for example, due to their historic two-party system and lack of coalitions, it has led to their parliament being almost unable to compromise which I believe is a cornerstone to all good governments. I I would also argue that this system is more democratic, as not only would the the Keys be proportionally representative to how the public actually voted, but the coalition form of government by its nature exists due to compromise, so parties, in order to legislate, have to consider each other's views, which means the public's views are being more represented within the House of Keys rather than just the 42% of people that vote for the Conservatives, for example, in the House of Commons, which is why I advocate for a multi-party system as opposed to a two-party system, in order to improve our democracy, if it indeed needs to be.
2: Thank you. Honourable Member for Council, Mr King.
7: I am afraid that I cannot support the motion. Aside from the chaos we have seen in the United Kingdom following their most recent referendum, I would like to outline why the idea is simply not feasible here. I start with the wording of the motion, greater use of. Well, what does that mean? The Isle of Man has never had a referendum as far as we can remember. So, is the member supposing we hold one every other week or only on selected issues? From her speech, I presume the latter. In which case, who chooses the issues? Surely the whole point is to put power to the people a bit more. Well, how's that happening if they're only being questioned on topics the Council of Ministers can't make its own mind up about? You can't have a referendum on whether or not to have a referendum. I feel the current system of using online consultations is a much better system for gauging public opinion. Of course, some would argue that consultations are only partaken in by people who are passionate about those subjects, but to some extent that may be true of a referendum as well. Online consultations are easy to access, unlike the referendum process, which involves going down to a church hall or school and putting an X in a box. If the idea is to gauge public view, rather than decide any concrete legislation, then surely in the modern world, there is no need. Increasingly, our politicians are engaging with people of all ages on social media about various topics, understanding the different viewpoints. OK, this does not present results as a figure or a statistic, but it does provide some insight. And finally, one large burden must be cost. I could not find a number for an Isle of Man election online for the cost. However, in 2017, the UK election cost the taxpayer £140 million, and according to an FOI to the Government of Jersey, its by-election across 12 parishes in 2016 cost 38000 So I presume we are somewhere in between. If we are to hold a referendum each year, there will be an ongoing cost on top of the salaries paid to our MHKs and MLCs, who, let's face it, are elected once every five years to make the decisions for us. <clears throat>
2: Honourable Member for Glenn Faber appeal, Mr McClelland.
7: Thank you, Mr President.
13: Um, obviously, if we lived in a perfect world, this would be great. Having direct democracy is always a great idea, because ultimately democracy is about the will of the people. However, the downfall of many a political theorist, we don't live in a perfect world. Not everyone turns out to vote. And as the point has been made already, any time you introduce direct democracy, voter turnout goes down, and ultimately, you end up going against what you originally wanted. I think it's pertinent also, as Mr. King said, with the cost. Um, a big thing with this is, obviously also, the, at what, what extent? Um, it's just a very uh, idealistic way of looking at things. We, th- th- there is a reason we pay politicians. We pay politicians to make decisions so we don't have to. We can get on with our lives.
2: Thank you. Mm. <coughs> call on the honourable member for Middle, Mr. Nicholson.
3: With regards to the previous mention of incentives to vote, I believe the lack of referme- referendums may encourage political apathy, as the population can be, for the most part, detached from the decisions being made by Parliament. Referendums can stimulate interest and involvement in important, influential decisions.
8: Yeah. <coughs> well but, honourable, honourable member, Mr. Dunn. I think there's two main reasons why we must reject this motion. I think the first one is, as I've already mentioned, division. Referendums give legitimacy, but not just to the side that wins them, to the side that that loses them as well. As we can see with the Brexit referendum, as we can see with the Ukraine referendum, with the Barcelona referendum, with every referendum in recent memory, Legitimacy has been given to the side that has lost, which has caused opportunistic politicians to rise up and take that side, causing division in our society. The second reason is education. The populace of um, the Isle of Man, and indeed the whole of the UK, are not very well educated on the referendums and their consequences. A good example of this is the Brexit referendum. For instance, many people had no idea how much money would actually go to the NHS and how much money wouldn't. So they believe claims from opportunistic politicians. So, this, therein lies our problem with referendums. They cause division and they ultimately, the people are not um, always educated enough to have a good, meaningful vote on them.
2: Ah, call on the Honourable Member for Wush and Ms. Sloan to reply to the debate.
3: Thank you, Minister. Um, I would firstly like to address Mr. King's point um, on which issues and relating to how he believes online forums are a more effective way of gauging the population's opinions. However, I would like to point out that this is um, disincluding those people who. Are perhaps not able to access the internet or are not particularly efficient at doing so, which is typically our older generation. Whereas the polling and a use of referendum would create a sense of unity among communities as more people are able to turn out to the voting booths, as opposed to being sat online on their own. It may also spark conversation within the town halls and schools that you mentioned. Um, Mr. McClellan's link to Switzerland um, and how. He doesn't believe that it is effective. Um, In Switzerland, over 600 have been held in the recent years. And whilst it may not have worked in other countries, it's working in in that European one. And whilst some countries may not take to referendums, it may be something to do with their population, the demographic, it's never been tried on the island. I believe it is at least worth a try to let the people have a go at saying what they think. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But I believe there is a need to try this. Um, Additionally, the point regarding a larger population across and how we're a smaller population, surely you shouldn't discriminate against us based upon size. The people can still have an opinion even if they are a smaller nation and in linking to how there's constant contact among politicians and the current Manx people, referendums will increase this even further as politicians will be out in the community lobbying their points, ensuring that the people vote their way. It's a greater, um, you, it's a way of inciting greater political awareness among the people. Even if the referendums are not a guaranteed use of legislature, it can be a use of educating the people on the goings-on of Tinwald and ensuring that they are aware of what is going on. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you. Honourable Members, the motion before you is item 3 on your order paper, that Junior Tinwald is of the opinion that greater use should be made of referendums to enhance the democratic process. Those in favour, please say aye. 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 Those against, no. 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 The no's if have I'd. it. Division called. Vote now, honourable members.
10: <laughs> Mr Deputy President, in the keys, 13, 4 and 11 against.
2: In the council, 1, 4, 7 against. The branches are in disagreement. The motion would ordinarily fail. Um, it would be up to the member as to whether they want to come back for a combined motion next month. However, no. that's not particularly open to the honourable <laughs> member today, because <laughs> uh, everyone will be in recess uh, next month and the, the the court won't be sitting. So, for this purpose and for this purpose alone, the motion will therefore fail today. Um, however, uh, just to enlighten you a little bit as to how the constitution would work in such circumstances, the. Uh, Honourable members, that concludes the items on the order paper for junior tin. Alden, ordinarily, at this point, the council would retire and leave Mr. Speaker to put uh, such business as was required to be put before it. However, we are not going to do that today. We are going to have a photograph. Um, before that, uh, can I congratulate all of you for your contributions yes. to debates, questions, supplementary questions, which have shown great insight and great research. I think they have been very well worthwhile. Um, can I also thank honourable members of Tinwald, the clerks and Hansard for making this event possible and more importantly, making this event so realistic for so. all of you. So with that, Junior Tynwald is adjourned until 2020. Thank
1: you. And that concludes this year's Junior Tynwald sitting. The mover of that motion, Chloe Sloan, was awarded the prize for best overall contributor. Some students at Junior Tynwald opted to take on the roles of journalists rather than politicians. Archibald Elliott from Castle Russian High School spoke to Education Minister Graham Krajean after the debate.
17: So today in Junior Timwood you were asked a question about mental health in schools, and you um, a supplementary question was asked regarding if you had any concrete evidence that your policies do actually work, and you responded that no, you don't have any concrete evidence. So I was wondering why you haven't got any concrete evidence yet, and if you're going to look for any to review. Well,
16: the thing is, it's, it's whether there's been research done to see whether it's working or not. So it's, it's, it's that balance between what you call concrete evidence and what you do by people who have given reports back. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, in the recent months, we've had a, a number of uh, people who've taken their own lives and it's one of the things that I've, I've raised that at the department is that we now need to start probably having a look at our policies to see is there anything else that we can be doing. And, you know, it's uh, quite poignant that at this moment sort of I've had contact from REACH, so I've asked them to see if they will contact us because to see if we can do anything together to help mental health awareness.
17: Thank you. I think that as being a student myself, we have not had any consultation of whether you think mental health policies are working, what can be done to improve, have you used them or any kind of student consultation. So do you think that would be a good idea to kind of ask the students what they think could be improved and how you how to go about it? Yes, you know,
16: feedback's always uh, welcome there. So if students have got any concerns, what I would say to them is, you know, y- you need to let us know. Um, and, and it's one of those things, unfortunately, us, us men are less likely to talk about these issues. And you know, that is a great concern, that you know, we need to talk more often about what our concerns are. You know, if we have any worries and talk, you know, make sure people go out and talk to somebody if they have any concerns.
17: You also, uh, in your response, likened exams to elections which MHK has partake in. Do you think that there is actually likeness to exams and elections because I, I, I'm a, the understanding that exams are testing memory and what you can remember and how you can phrase it but elections you don't take an exam in an election you not actually need to revise for an election you just put out your manifesto and try and persuade people to vote for you it's not kind of saying oh yes the square root of this number is here it's Completely different.
16: Oh, well, I challenge you on that, because one of the things is that when people come up with their manifestos, it's what they are trying to, to, to achieve, and you talk to the people who, who are your electorate. So I would challenge you on whether it's an, actually anything to do. You know, it, there, there is a comparator there. Plus, also, you have that stressful time that, you know, uh, if you're, you're waiting for your exam results, so you just imagine you've been knocking on doors for eight, nine weeks, it, seeing individuals every day. You don't like yourself asking me questions now, I didn't know you're going to ask any of those questions. You're knocking on doors all the time not knowing what people are going to ask you or to say and then on election day you're waiting there for the count and going through that so as a stress you know I, I think that you have got that sort of I don't know whether you've been at any elections whether you've stood for student council or anything like that I would say, if you stood for the student council, have you felt any sort of stress by trying to represent some views?
17: I don't think that there's as much stress as in your exams, because obviously as an MHK, you would have been qualified in, you'd already taken many of your exams which then pertain your life choices. I, for example, when I sit my exams, they will determine my path in life, where I go, what job I get, and how that impacts. And I'd say that elections would pertain more to coursework. It, it, that would be better representation, because in my coursework, I don't know what grade it's going to get until it's moderated. I think that's less stressful, in a way, than exams.
16: But the thing is, you know, when you're looking at um, a, a politician's role, when you're going into different jobs, it may not be your area that you've actually looked in. So you have to do a huge amount of research into your topics. And so, so as, a, as when I got first elected, the first department I went into was the Environment, uh, Food and Forestry. You know, so so you having to learn there. Then I went into Education and to Tourism and Leisure. So you having to learn every time. Then it went into uh, uh, Department of Infrastructure. So you're trying to pick up up there. Every day is is a learning peak in a different area. So it's a it, it life is a different experience. So. You may not have a qualification and the qualifications that you take at school may not determine ultimately where you want to go in the future. Because um, when you look across members of uh, parliament, you wouldn't say, I think there's only one member who's actually done politics. So the vast majority of people who do politics don't actually go into politics. And if you do geography, it doesn't mean that you're going to be doing geography as your career. You can go into banking or you can go into something else. So what you've studied is how you actually learn. And this is one of the things that the department is looking at is lifelong learning and, and opening that up so that after you've taken your initial exams, that your career can go in directions. I, I look at it as like a tube map, that any time during your career, you can get off one tube and get onto another tube and go in another direction. Because you don't know now that in 20 years time, you might find another job actually engages you more than what you think now.
17: Thank you. I was in more respect with the exams. It was passing the exams. It's not necessarily the exam choice which then gives your career. Uh, I was just wondering what your opinion on the whole Junior Timew Today's sitting was. I think it's it's a, a great event. It gets people engaged,
16: uh, and you know, when the questions were coming up, it may not have been something that somebody had thought of previously. And then you've got people uh, engaging in it, so it's, it's a, I think, it's a good way of engaging the youth into, into politics.
1: That was Archie Elliot there speaking to Education Minister Graham Crajean. Isabella Jimenez and Sadie Gilbert spoke to various people after the sitting.
3: Hello, this is Sadie Gilbert, and I'm interviewing Emma Mitchell. Um, Emma, how do you feel you your experience with Junior Timewell was, and would you recommend it to students next year?
6: Hello, uh, thank you for this opportunity. I absolutely loved it, every minute of it, and I would highly recommend it to almost every other student. It's definitely helped uh, with my confidence, my preparation skills, my presentation skills. Um, it's definitely a lot that students can gain from, and it has helped me to uh, create a possible path for the future if I decide to go into politics.
3: My name is Isabella, and I'm interviewing Chloe Sloan on her participation in the Junior World today. Now, Chloe, Are you clear on what you want to do in the future as a career? And if so, has this helped influence or further that interest? Um, Yes, absolutely. I'm wanting to go on to study politics, philosophy and economics at university. And so this opportunity has really for me confirmed. That is what I want to do. The enjoyment that I got out of today has sort of made the future look a little bit less bleak. I'm definitely going to enjoy my uni degree. Um, I would like to go on to work for the United Nations or a similar peacekeeping course in the future and so the ability to debate is obviously very important and today has allowed me to further those skills and to um, experience some real-life politics. Lady Gilbert here, who were you?
17: George McCormand.
3: And what did you think about Junior Timwell today? Uh,
17: I thought it was interesting to hear a wide array of opinions from all the students and um, I thought the debates were quite interesting as well.
3: My name's Isabella and I'm interviewing William King. I was just wondering what you've taken from this experience at Junior Tinwald and why you'd recommend it to younger students coming up in the future.
7: What I've taken from Junior Tinwald? Well, it's a, a new experience for me, sitting on that side of the Tinwald chamber and being able to uh, speak to the politicians and ask them questions. I've had it a new experience because when you pose the question to the politician, You sort of can't just butt in like you could if you were speaking to them in the street. You've got to let them finish and then come back. And yeah, it was a a brilliant experience just to to be there and witness the whole thing and to be able to ask questions to the people in charge.
3: This is Sadie Gilbert and I'm interviewing Mr Deputy Speaker. Um, How would you say this year's Junior Timbalt 2019 has gone? Are you impressed by what the students have brought?
10: very very impressed indeed actually slightly concerned they really were of a very high quality indeed and I think we we, we need to consider our performance in in some respects it was excellent there were some very very strong contributions from a number of members considering it was the first time they'd ever done anything like that the engagement in the questions was you know with supplementary questions was excellent the choice of, uh, of, of motions on the part of the members was was excellent and the quality of the debate was good, and their ability to respond uh, to the debate again was uh, admirable. I I really am uh, very, very impressed indeed.
3: Would you say you're confident that the speakers here today have potential in furthering careers in politics in the future?
10: Well, when we made the presentation at the end, which they all deserve to receive in some respects, um, I I did say that as I drift into my dotage, uh, I wish to look back and hopefully see some of the uh, young people today
1: actually in the keys because I think they will do an excellent job. Thanks to Isabella Jimenez and Sadie Gilbert there for getting the views of those in attendance. And that's it for Perspective this week. Thanks for listening.